This week, uh, my mind has been on missionaries. Um, a couple different reasons. Last Monday evening, I went to the Colorado Baptist uh, Convention, and I got to hear one of my friends preach, uh, Paul Chitwood. Paul is the president of the Interma- International Mission Board. International Mission Board has uh, over 4,000 missionaries in some of the hardest-to-reach uh, places in the world. Uh, so many of our international IMB missionaries are like the Green Beret of missionaries. And as he's preaching and he's telling stories, man, I was ready to run through a brick wall. I was like, all right, let's charge hell with a squirt gun, like whatever it takes. I'm willing. Sign my whole church up. We're all going. And uh, just so you know, if you get something in the mail, that's, that's why. Um, you're signed up to the mission field now. No, I'm just kidding, maybe. And, uh, you know, so there's that, you know, and I, I heard them and, and I it got me thinking about some of my other missionary friends. Um, man, the, 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 the war in Israel and Palestine, the Gaza Strip, it got brought to my attention um, that there's, we have missionaries in both places. And so in both places, in the middle of what is, what is a war-torn area, do we have people trying to bring uh, the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to both Muslims and Jews? And he- hearing that, you know, that's been on, been on my mind. It's like, you know, here we are, we're signed up to take the good news, and now we're caught in the middle of war. And like, what sacrifice? Uh, that, that literally, when you, when you do that, you're, you're saying, okay, I'm putting my life on the line. And it got me thinking about um, some other missionaries from, from the past. Uh, Chris Parrish actually mentioned them in his sermon last week. He, he brought up the Moravian missionaries. And the, the Moravian is an ethnic group, it's ethnic people, uh, they're Slavic in nature, they were uh, what modern day kind of Czech, uh, Czech, Czech Republic would be, uh, some of those people would live where Germany is, and um, in the early 1700s, and so um, you see this missionary movement happen, it's, it's uh, man, you, so much of our Protestant history and the, the Protestant Reformation and the missionary movements that happen can, can go back to, to uh, seeing. E- even when we talk about, in our history, a, a John Wesley, a William Carey, like these great people in, in our church history were influenced by the Moravian movement of missionaries. And Chris, Chris mentioned last week kind of briefly some of the extreme things that the Moravian missionaries would do. Moravian missionaries, um, they had this zeal to go to the ends of the earth, to take the gospel. At at one point, uh, so not just talking about the Moravian church, but the people group, the Moravians, one out of like every 12 were somewhere else in the world doing missions. Right, so think about that. So that's not like saying, imagine we would be like super proud if one out of every 12 of us went to the nations to do missions. We're talking about like the people who live there, one out of every 12. Like it was so many people. And so they would do things like sell themselves into slavery, into, into what when we think about slavery and chattel slavery, like they would sell themselves into that so that they would, they would lose everything they have and they would be able to go and they would have to be in, in, in this forced labor but in order to tell people about Jesus. And, you know, for them, it was like, this is a, a boat ride to an island of people that we, we can get there and tell them about Jesus. Often, uh, in, when Moravians would get on boats to go places, to go, to, to travel the seas, to go somewhere, um, they would pack 
their belongings in a pond, wood, a pond box, a, a casket. They would put the, everything they would own in a casket, and they would go, everything I need is right here in this casket. And they would, they would ship off, literally willing to give their lives. You ever heard the term, burn the ships? Um, it's, it's actually, you know, this is something we hear missionary, it happened in missionary movements during that time. And there's a lot of different stories, and probably a lot of them aren't, aren't true. Uh, but, but we see the, this kind of um, ethos that was like, we're going to go, and when we get there, we're going to take and burn the ship that it took to get us here in or, so that we don't get scared and back out and go home. Like, we are all in. And so you, you hear these stories about uh, these missionaries that would go to places like Scotland, and they would literally burn their boats. They were, they were all in. And we think about these missionaries. We think about modern-day missionaries, we think missionaries from the past. This is what we know. It costs them a lot. It costs them everything. And I kind of look back on those guys and, 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 you know, my sinfulness, I can look at them and go, man, they're like heroes. These guys are like heroes of the faith. But I guarantee you, if you would have asked them, are you a hero? They would say, no. I'm just a Christ follower. I'm just a follower of Jesus. And this is what Jesus followers do. As we jump into our text today, here's the big truth that I, I, I want us to walk away with and I want us to see. And it's this, that salvation is free, but following Jesus will cost you everything. Not too long ago, I preached from Luke chapter 9, and it's a very similar passage, and I actually had the exact same big truth. And, and, and I started to do a different one, and I was just going to note that this was a big truth, and I was like, no, this big truth highlights what this passage is about. Salvation is free. Uh, coming to Christ, your, your salvation, your forgiveness of sins, it is absolutely free. There is nothing you can do to buy it. It doesn't matter uh, what your works are, what your effort is, how much money you have, how much you give, whatever human standard you want to put on it, there's nothing that can earn you favor and forgiveness with God. Um, here, here's, here's the story of the gospel, the good news, is that God created everything that we have. He created man, he created us on, in his own image, and it was good. He put Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, and they were sinless, they were without sin, and things were good. And he gave them these really specific rules, and they broke them. And sin entered the world. And from that point on, the world was broken. And it doesn't take us, it doesn't take us looking around far to look through history to see that there is sin. There is disobedience and rebellion towards God. And that disobedience and rebellion towards God puts distance between us and God. It separates us from God. In the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system where they would sacrifice animals and they would, they would sacrifice this bloodshed for the remission and forgiveness of sins. But it was something they would have to do over and over and over every time they sinned. They would have to do it, they would have to do it in these different ceremonies and all these things for the forgiveness of sins. We see that Jesus, I mean God, in his love for us, wanting to reconcile the rebel to himself, sends his son Jesus Christ to, to, to live this perfect life. He was sinless. He never sinned. 
We see him live this perfect and spotless life. We see him do his ministry, reconciling pe- people to God until he died on the cross. And he, he, was, he was crucified on the cross. He was truly dead. He was put in the, in the grave, a dead man. And God did what only God can do. And God breathed life back into his son and raised him from the dead. And he made a way for you and I, those who've sinned against God, who have separation from God, to be reconciled to God. So that we can know him and we can be in right standing with him through the blood of Jesus. And there's nothing that we can do to earn that. There's nothing we can do to pay for that. God is the one who paid the price. There's an old song that says, Jesus paid it all. And that means we paid none of it. So salvation is free. You can't buy it. But then there's also this reality of Scripture that following Jesus will cost you everything. I say it a different way. Salvation is free, but your discipleship will cost you everything. And that old song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And when we see the sacrifice that God did in his son Jesus in our lives and following him, we're saying we're making him Lord and we're following him. So this is what he's going to teach us today in Luke chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 25. We've been in Luke chapter, uh, we've been in Luke, the book of Luke, since uh, the end of last November. I figured it up this week. I think I've got about 40 more weeks in the book of Luke. And so I think we'll be done about the time school starts next year, somewhere in there. So in the meat of it, super good, super relevant, and I think maybe understanding this passage Passages could be one of the most crucial passages for an American to understand what discipleship is and what it means to follow Jesus. So starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own disciples... Uh, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I I think Jesus says that phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. About seven times in scripture. And, And he says it in these important times, these times of like, you need to get this. And let me tell you who should have ears to hear. The church should have ears to hear. The the people who say, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. 
I believe in Jesus. Jesus is king. Those are the people who should have ears to hear. Those who don't have ears to hear have hardened hearts, closed hearts, hearts and eyes and ears that are focused on the things of the world. So if, if you are here today and you're saying, Jesus is Lord of my life, I'm a follower of Jesus, you need to hear this. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, I pray that today that your ears would be open and you would see for the first time who Jesus is. We see a very similar uh, account in chapter 9. We see some similar language. And now Jesus is in a different place, a different, uh, a, a different set of circumstances, and he's, he's teaching some of these same principles, but then he's going to teach these same, same principles or truths somewhat in a different way. He's going to add in some stuff here. And so verse 25, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. So remember, he, he's no longer preaching in the synagogues. He's kind of left that, and he's preaching at the highways and the byways. He's going out to get the people who, who aren't a part of uh, the, the Jewish community. He's going out to the people who are not turning their, their ears away from him. He's going to people that he wants, he, he believes, he's calling these people unto himself. And so he says to this, this great crowd that's following him, and he's really putting up this, this fence of like, okay, you're, you're following me, but you don't have a lot in this. You're about to get some skin in the game. And he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Here's my first big idea. Your love for Jesus must far outweigh your love for anybody else. Now, if you look at the, the big truth and you compare it to, to the Scripture, you go, wait a second, you just really watered that down. Well, actually, actually, here's, here's my goal here. It's not to water it down. It's to show you the full depth of it. And so one of, the, one, of our, one of our kind of principles, when we open up Scripture and we seek to understand what it says, this is called hermeneutics, when we seek to interpret Scripture, it's let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so where else in Scripture do we see these kind of things being taught? Matthew uh, chapter 10, Matthew also a you know, disciple who would have heard Jesus uh, preach and teach, he words it this way. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so we see, like, Jesus, what he's doing is making kind of this comparative uh, nature of the words love and hate. It's so, in, okay, um, your love for God is going to be so rich, your love for Jesus, that your other loves in life look more like hate than they do love. We also have to look at other places in Scripture and go, what does God, God teach us about loving our mother and father and sister and kid? Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us, honor your father and your mother. Right? He, so we can't contradict himself and say, honor your father and mother and hate your mother and father. He says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Can't say, 
Husbands hate your wives when he's clearly told us that we must love them. Or he wouldn't demonstrate how much we ought to love little children and then tell parents to, to hate them, right? Or to be reconciled to your brother and then encourage brotherly hatred. He couldn't command you love your enemies, but then turn around and hate your family, right? So this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus does this so often. He's teaching us the paradox of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is full of these paradoxes. And, and there are these sharp paradoxes. These paradoxes that when we hear Jesus say them, like they're, they, they cause like almost a knee jerk. Like, what? And the purpose in Jesus' teaching when he uses these profound statements is to get us to think. It's to bring us outside of, of the norm and make us go, what is, he, what is he saying? What is Jesus really saying? What does he, he really mean? And so over and over and over, we see these paradoxes in the kingdom of God. Things like, Whoever is last is first, right? If you want to find yourself, you must first lose yourself, right? The fact that self-denial is self-discovery is like a paradox that doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes sense in the kingdom of God. A paradox is, is, is they, they went across, they're seemingly absurd, um, they seem like self-contradictory statements, but rather, uh, when you investigate them further, they end up being true. And so here we have this paradox, is your love must look like hate. And so, here's, here's what he's teaching us. Making your love of Jesus so great that it seems in, like hate in comparison to other things give you a silly example. Um, I love my wife's cooking. All of it. Everything she ever cooks, me and our boys adore. Now, she doesn't believe that, but I'm telling you it's the truth. A few weeks ago, it was my birthday week, and uh, our house, months get celebrated. She spoils us, and months get celebrated. It's my week and she's going to cook all my favorite stuff. And she cooks, uh, she makes these peach cupcakes. And I'm a Georgia boy. I love anything peach. And these peach cupcakes are to die for. And if you tried to eat one, you might die. Right? That's what I mean by that, right? Like, I, I, will, I will kill you. I'm just kidding. I won't, I won't actually kill anybody. But um, I want my kids to believe that. And uh, as they try to get those cupcakes. And so, like, for a week straight, guess what I ate? Cupcakes. So it's like, breakfast, have a cupcake. It's lunch, have a cupcake. She makes dinner, and she's like, did she not like dinner? I'm like, no, I just really love the cupcakes, right? There's like a, a silly analogy of like, okay, here, here, like that's not a joke. I literally was eating them all the time, anytime until they were gone, and she made a bunch. And they're a lot of work, so I really appreciate you making those uh, cupcakes. And uh, right, that, that's silly. But, but she comes in, in that moment, and she goes, what, did you not like the tacos I made tonight? And I'm like, we have tacos Every Tuesday, all year long. I get these cupcakes once, right? What do you think? <laughs> Go eat the cupcake. Here, here's another analogy, maybe, maybe that can, maybe a mm, little, more, little more serious. Um, this is for the married women in the room. Um, married women in the room, if your husband loves his mom more than he loves you, how's your marriage going to go? Mm. That's what you just said. She said, mm. 
it ain't going to go well. Now, I just got some husbands in trouble because there's some husbands who probably still love their mom a little too much. Uh, you know, like, all right, you need to chill, bro. Chill. Love your wife. The, the Bible teaches us really, really clear. Uh, the husband shall leave his mother and father and be fast to his wife. Now, does that mean he should not love his mama? No. But his love for his mama don't need to look the same as his love for his wife, does it? Right? Another kind of sil like silly analogy, but there's a more truth in this one, right? This is real good marriage advice, men. Love your wives. <laughs> it takes some getting. It takes some time. But love them. Love them well. Your mom's going to get mad at you. It's okay. You don't want your wife mad at you. Love your wife. And so this is really what this, this paradox that Jesus is painting a picture of us for. It's like, no. It's not that you would I hate my mom. I love my mom. I just love my wife more. And so when we get this paradox right, when we love Jesus so much that it just, any other relationship just fails in comparison to it. It just pales. It just looks so dim. Then we're getting the love of Jesus right. Now, here's the crazy thing about this paradox is that the more we love Jesus, the more we love God, the more we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, our neighbor, we, the more we are capable of loving our neighbor as ourself. And so often in life, we will get relationships out of order. We will try to love a person, whether it be our spouse or a kid, into a place that we create an idol out of them. There's this idolatry happens, and then it, it ends up, it ends up being pointed at ourselves. We love them because of how they make us feel or how they, we, we want to want to feel. And when they can't meet our needs, when they can't hold up to the standard that only Jesus can, it ends up causing division in the relationship because they're an idol and things are out of order. And so when you love Jesus most, when you love him first, you are going to be a better husband, a better wife, a, a, a better father, a better mother, a better sister, a better brother. And so when we love Jesus, this is, this is part of that paradox. It's like our, our love changes. So we must love Jesus. Verse 27. Because the danger is that we would end up loving our own loves, loving ourselves. Verse 27, he says, Who does not, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so here's my next big idea, is that you must die to yourself to live. Yet another paradox. You must die to yourself to live. You must die in order to live. The Apostle Paul got this really well. Philippians chapter 1, he says this. He says, To live is Christ." To die is gain. In Galatians 2.20, he said it this way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I once lived in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. Baptism paints a picture of this. Baptism paints a picture of us dying to ourselves. Salvation happens when we confess Jesus as Lord. Saying, Jesus, you are Lord, means something. It means that you are not Lord. You're saying, I am no longer the ruler of my life. I'm no longer the one who's deciding how my life goes, but Jesus is. And that means I'm submitting myself to Jesus and his word and the things that his word teaches, the commands of Christ, the commands of Scripture, that's how I'm going to live my life. So if Jesus says that's a no, that's a no. 
If his word says that's a sin, I don't want to do it. I'm not doing it. If his word says do that, that's the thing I want to do. If his word has a a clear command to to do this thing, that's the thing I want to do. I want to do the commands of Christ. I, I don't want to do the other things. That means I'm dying to myself. That my will, my desires, I'm turning over to Christ and I'm submitting under the authority of his word. And so, if you want to follow Christ, you've got to die to yourself. Baptism, that's that's how we're telling the world. That that water is a tomb. And and when you're baptized, you're going into that tomb. You're, You're being buried with Jesus in baptism. You're saying, I'm dead to myself. And you're being raised to walk a new way of life. You're saying, the life that I once lived in the flesh, now I'm living by faith in the Son of God. It's different. I'm dying to myself. So the next, he uses these twin parables. And so, these are two parables that are going to illustrate the same point. By the way, I just did that. When I do, use those two illustrations, I use cupcakes and being married, to, you know, loving your mama more than your wife. Those are just twin parables, right? He's doing the same thing. He's helping drive the point home. So he does this. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether it has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see him begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, anybody's husband ever like started a project and then didn't finish it, ran out of money, whatever to lay on it, besides my wife? Um, <laughs> Yeah, right? We do that. That's something that happens. Have you ever seen something that started to build and doesn't finish? Seems foolish. A work king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Right? That seems like if you're a king and you're going to war, you would, you would think that way, right? Now, does that always happen? No. And so, here's he says, and if not, you know, there's a great way off. You're going to do everything you can to stop that war from happening. So he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Both situations, what is Jesus telling us in these two parables? That you must count the cost. So here's the next big idea. One of the first steps of salvation is counting the cost. We have something that, that's happened in the church growth movement in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s and still happens today, and it's something called easy believism. And it's where we have so cheapened salvation and what it means to follow Christ that we've lowered the standard and we, we've got it to fill this out on a card and come get baptized or just walk up and get baptized. Or, uh, I mean, remember in, in some of you it was, you know, close your eyes, say this prayer, raise your hand, and it was just super like let's just get you dunked, let's get you wet, and you're a believer without ever really counting the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, some of us really heard that, we believed it, and in the process of sanctification, figured out what it cost us. And because Jesus had moved and Jesus had worked, we were like, all right, we just keep figuring it out. But man, I want to tell you on the front end what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. I, I don't want to be the car salesman that's like selling you something that, that's not what you think it is. I want you to know exactly what it is that you are getting. 
And so, you got to count the cost. You've got to figure it out. December 25th, 2013. 12, rather. 11, thank you. Well, I'm two years off. Thank you. I wake up. Christmas morning, middle of the night, with this, like, thought. It's time for us to adopt. And Jennifer and I had had prior conversations about adoption, but we hadn't had one in a long time. And the Lord just laid it on my heart. And then she woke up, and I looked at her, and I we've got to adopt. And she's like, all right, great. I've been praying you'd get there. Well, all right, well, I'm here now. And um, we were in Georgia, we were traveling at Christmas, and we went, we went back to Kentucky, and guess what I started doing? Counting the cost. I started trying to figure out what, what would it cost us to adopt. And let me tell you, it ain't cheap. And as I started figuring out the cost, and, and counting the cost, and like looking at our bank account and what we make, you know what I realized? I can't, we can't afford to adopt. And so we just did whatever. We asked the Lord, we prayed our church family, our friends, we worked, we did all these things, and all of a sudden, um, you know, in a two-year course, we were able to adopt and bring home, home our son James from Ethiopia. And whatever the shock that happened for, for us when we went home and tried to figure out what would it cost us to adopt, let me tell you something. I'd pay a million times more. Because when I counted the cost, I realized it would be worth every penny. Every penny. And we come to salvation in Christ, it's, it's much like that. You're going to count the cost and you're going to see that it costs you everything. And you need to look and to figure out what it is, it is going to cost you. But I want you to know, whatever it costs you, it will be worth it. You need to ask yourself today, if you don't know Christ, what would it cost you? Believer in the pew? What does it cost you to follow Jesus? What relationship might it cost you? It might cost you a relationship. Chris Parrish, who preached last week, he's not, he's not, his father's not spoken to him in like 12 years. He's rejected his, his being in ministry. He's rejected his being a, a preacher. And yet he goes, it's worth it. Some of you might, you might be in a relationship that you realize, like if, if my significant other, the per, my boyfriend or girlfriend, if I follow Christ, we're going to break up. They're going to break up with me. It's worth it. Some of you might, might be living together. Living in one house, un, un, unwed. The Bible calls that the, the having sex outside of marriage and living together, forni fornication. You're getting the cart before the horse. And, and it may, may mean that you've got to break that up. You've got to move out. You've got to get things right and in order. And it could cost you your relationship. It, 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 it may cost you. So often when we count the cost of following Christ, it's a sin that we want to hold on to. It's an addiction Often, I just bring up sex again, often it has sexual connotation to it of some sort. 
It's, it's some sort of sexual relationship, sexual desire, something that was not intended for you. It, it may mean, some of you may be same-sex attracted, and, and you're going, okay, that means I'm, 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 I'm going to be celibate. Some of you, it, 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 it may mean that, that you're going to have to take drastic steps. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe you're addicted to alcohol. Alcohol is how you medicate. And you love alcohol more than you love God, more than you love your family, and you go, I, I've got to stop, I've got to stop drinking. Maybe it's, maybe it's pot, maybe it's some other sort of drug that, that you're using, that you're, that's your idol that keeps you from following. Maybe it's parting, maybe it's a certain lifestyle. Maybe, it's, maybe you're more like the rich young ruler. It's a worldly treasure. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy's like, I can't do that. i got to hold on to this. Maybe it's a worldly treasure. Maybe it's a worldly pursuit. But I want you to count the cost today. Listen to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a harsh truth. That's what it means to come to Jesus, is renouncing what we have. And so here's the next big idea, is that after counting the cost, you must determine that it is worth everything to follow Christ. Listen, I think this is hard for adults. We've got these careers, we've got hobbies, we've got these interests, we've got money, we've got investments, we've got these different things, right? We've got other people under us that we care for, and, and we think when we make this, this decision, how does it affect all these other things? And so we, we've, got to, we've got to process that, you know. We've got to process how does it affect all these other things. If I, if I surrender to Jesus, is he going to call my family somewhere else? Is he going to move us over here? Is he going to do this thing? Like, that's a big deal. I think it's hard for adults. Kids? I don't think it's so hard for kids. Right? You're, you're, you're eight years old, and you look at the world, and you look up and you go, that's a train wreck. That's scary out there. My mom and dad, they're faithful. They love Jesus. I look at the peace in our home. I look at the peace in our church. I look at all these things, and this seems like it's a pretty good path. Let me follow that. Amen. May our kids be that way. But I think for, for a teenager, for a college student, it's really, really hard. Do you know why? Because the world is after them. Satan is after him. By the way, in, in a very like real practical, even financial sense, there is, there is more money invested in the pursuit of them, in the algorithm, in the marketing to our, our teenagers and young adults of saying, this is what the world looks like, and this is what you want. This is the thing that you want to pursue. And then there's peer pressure. Peer pressure is never stronger than those years. Peer pressure says, this is what the world has, this is what it's offering, and this is what is good. This is what you want. This is how you need to be. And so, man, so comes after our, our future. You're, you're in those teenage years, those college years. You're thinking about what you want to become, what you want to do. And there aren't a lot of people saying, I'm going, I'll just be whatever Jesus wants me to be. Right? There's like this real will of I want to be what I want to be. And the world sells us this lies about sexuality and and what that means, and who you're attracted to, and if you're a, a, a male or female, and all these things, right? Man, are, you guys know, Gen, Gen Z people in the room, you, you know how important mental health is, right? You're told all the time, our mental health matters, our mental health matters. 
Can I ask you something? If we look around at our peers, Gen Z, you look around and go, mental health matters. Are we mentally healthy? We look around like, are we just killing it in the mental health world? We're not, are we? We're as dysfunctional as we've ever been. We're as suicidal as we've ever, ever been. We've got more problems than we've ever had. We have more things, more, more toys, more prizes, more, um, uh, more access to the world. And we sit in our sadness. And so, I just want to say this to you. Maybe the world's got it wrong. Maybe the world has missed it. And what they're telling you, hey, give up these things. Don't give up those. Don't follow Jesus. He's crazy. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe whatever you call, what's going to cost you to go have this life of, you know, for the boomers in the room, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? I, now it's sex and Instagram likes. I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what it is. But whatever it is, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, my gosh. It, it's whatever it is, it ain't working. It's not there. It, it, it's not, it's not going to build you up. It's, it's, you're not going to find satisfaction in that very thing. And so, I'm going to tell you, following Jesus is worth it. Those other things, those other pursuits, they are going to let you down. They're going to leave you empty. You're going to want love and you're not going to experience it. But in Jesus you will. In the pursuit of Jesus you can. In, in the pursuit of Jesus, in prayer, in the reading of his word, he will turn your life upside down. He will do a great and mighty work. And so this is what he says next. He says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's my next big idea. Is that following Jesus will cost you every day. You see, he uses this analogy about salt. We don't use salt the same way they use salt. In, in the first century... You remember, there's no refrigeration. Uh, there's, there's none of the amenities that we have. And so how do they preserve food? One of the main things they did was they would pack it in salt. Salt would, would, was used for seasoning. They, didn't, you know, they couldn't go get all, all their good seasoning out of the cabinet. Like, they had salt. <laughs> and so it's, it's seasoned with salt. Uh, salt was used as a preservative. Salt's what kept it from going bad. Now, if salt has lost its taste. Now, here's, here's what I want you to know. Actual salt, like the, the chemical compound that salt can't lose its taste. It is salt. But they didn't have access to the kind of equipment that we have and weren't able to mine salt the way that we're mining. In that area of the world, uh, salt actually, most of the time when mine was mixed with gypsum, and it had a ton of other stuff in it. And so after it was used, after it was used over and over, it, it, would, it would get diluted. Other things would come in and, and, and over overtake it. And so what you're using in your salt actually isn't all salt. It's at this point, it's no good. It's been compromised. So much so, in, its, in it being compromised, that it's not even good to, 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 they would take salt and they would put it on the manure pile to uh, make the smell go down. It wouldn't even do that anymore. And there were certain things about salt that would add to, uh, the, in the manure pile to help with, with uh, for, to make it more fertile, fertilization. And, and it wouldn't even do 
that. It would be no good and it needed to be thrown away. And so, when I say following Jesus will cost you every day, it, it, it's, it's not just about your salvation, it's about your following of Christ. It's about your preservation in Christ. We often, we often call this, um, you know, once saved, always saved, you would hear somebody say. We call it, it's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that in following Christ, you will do it over and over again. You will count the cross. When Jesus said it in Luke chapter 9, he said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And so, by, by absolutely every, every measure, if you're not a believer today, and you're, 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 in, you're here today, and you're going, I'm thinking about following Jesus, you're going to have to count the cost. But every person in the room who, who says Jesus is Lord, it's something that you have to do every day. Every day, you have to be set apart to go, I'm going to follow Christ, I'm not going to follow the world today. I'm going to follow Christ, I'm going to do what is right today. Your obedience doesn't just cost you once, it costs you every day. Now, here's a few things I want to show you in Scripture and how, how we live this out. The first is in baptism. It's that, that when you come to Christ, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible shows us that the way that you tell the world is by being baptized in, in water, by immersion, in front of the church, with the body. And you're telling the world through, in the church, I am a follower of Jesus. And some of you need to do that. You, you, some of you need to say, listen, I've, count, I've counted the cost, and I have determined it is worth it. This is the better return on investment. This, 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 this cost, it's not just about this life, it's not just about this moment, but it's about the next life too. Absolutely, following Jesus will change your, how you live in this world, and it is a better way, but it will also impact your eternity and how you live the next life. The second is communion. We're going to take the Lord's Supper today. And we take the Lord's Supper. It is an opportunity for us to come and say we're counting the cost, and it's worth it. Now, you know that there's no one who counts the cost perfectly all the time. There's no one who every day takes up their cross and follows Jesus. There's no, no one who every day dies to themselves. That we stumble and we fall. That we, we sin against God. We go through seasons of rebellion in our heart that we need to, to confess and repent of. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he, he says, like, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I want to do, I don't, and so I, I, hate, I, hate, I hate it, but I, I do it. The things I love, I, I don't do, and it's a problem. Like, that's us. And, and part of taking communion is saying we're counting the cost. We're repenting. We're evaluating. We're examining our life, and we're repenting of it. We're examining, are we willing to count the cost and follow Jesus? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And so that's what this little wafer in here, it's unleavened bread, it has no leaven in it, represents. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, now, this represents the cup. It's, it's just grape juice, but it represents um, the blood of Jesus. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in doing this, we're making a proclamation that we are taking up our cross and following Jesus. So communion, the Lord's Supper, is for those who are saying, I'm one of Jesus's. I'm following him. And then he tells us this, or whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so there's an examining that we're going we're gonna, to, in, in the song in a minute, I want you to stand and I want you to pray. You can sit, you can kneel, you can do whatever, and I want you to examine yourself. And I want you to see, is there sin in my life that I'm unwilling to repent of? What I want you to do is to repent of it, to turn from it, to turn away from it and run to Jesus because Jesus is better. But if you're unwilling to turn from it, don't come, take the cup. Listen to this. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And it has consequences, he said to the, to the Corinthian church. This is, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we've judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So communion is for those who believe. It's for those who have been baptized. And it's those who are living and walking in repentance saying, I am crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I once lived in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you that while we were sinners, you died for us, that you came to the earth, that you lived a perfect and spotless life, that you were holy and you were righteous and that you are good and that while we are not, that while we are far from perfect, you are full of grace and mercy. And that you made a way for us who were in rebellion to be reconciled. To be put in right standing with God the Father. And so, Lord, we're thankful. Lord, today, for those who are here that do not know you, that never repented, may they believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved today. And for the Christian in the room, oh, may we repent. May we carry our cross daily and may we proclaim your death until you come back. Lord, don't tarry. In Jesus' name, amen.